Yes, hello, folks. Welcome to the Global Football Show. I'm your host, as always, Phil Brown. Join with my regular co-host here, the fantastic Zach Louie. Of course, you can find Zach at Zach Louie or his fantastic website, Breaking the Lines. We're back. Of course, we missed last week. I was sick last week. Um, so what happens when you get old? Lots to talk about today, mate. First of all, how you doing? Hey, Phil. Doing very well. Excited to be back on the show after two weeks. Got a lot to talk about. So, uh, yeah, let's get right into it. Yes, let's talk about We'll talk about the VAR controversy. Is it something that's adding value to football or is it something that's getting in the way of enjoying football? Is it beautiful abstract art that it is? We'll talk about the hornet's nest that Todd Bowley's store has, has, has caused and uh, stirred up. Uh, we'll talk about the fact that Arsenal played a 15-year-old this weekend and is that too young? Uh, if we get some time, we'll cover some other topics that are on the agenda. We'll see where time allows. First of all, Zach, I want to talk about VAR because this has been something that's been talked about quite a bit over the last couple of weeks. And whether it's truly adding anything positive to the game, we all want major decisions to be adjudicated properly. We all want them to be given correctly. But VAR is now in the weeds of football. It's now in the nuance. It's now adjudicating minor infractions that are supposed to be within the tolerance level of mistakes within referees. But even the statement clear and obvious is subjective because what is clear and obvious? And if there's a minor infraction that will build up to a goal, is that not clear, a clear and obvious error that shouldn't be allowed? Because the most egregious example of an advantage you can get is a goal that is comprised of something that wasn't within the rules of the game. And if you're on the receiving end of that, then you want that to be given. If you're not, I can, or if you're neutral, I can understand why people would say it shouldn't be given. Um, What's your take on VAR and whether um, this is a positive or negative for football? You know, Phil, when VAR was uh, introduced in, I think, 2018, around that time, uh, I was really optimistic for it because I was just sick and tired of so many teams getting robbed by these decisions where, you know, if there was video technology, it would not have happened. So, look, there have definitely been improvements in that aspect okay i think you cannot deny that uh the fact is we we have seen so many plays uh being given uh to to the correct team with that would not have been given a few years ago so look i think there has been improvement on that end with that being said though phil uh the issue with var the issue with this you know robot technology is that it is still administered by humans and mm-hmm. humans are imperfect humans are going to make mistakes and that is what we have seen so many times with the application of var that's where i am you know day by day becoming more pessimistic is with the application and human error and honestly where i'm at with var i think that it needs to go either one way or the other way okay it cannot stay where it is we need to either widen the scope so that referees have far more judgment, far more ability uh, and jurisdiction to utilize VAR to correct decisions. You know, and, you know, for example, uh, a foul that was a yellow card that isn't in VAR's current jurisdiction, you know, allowing them to administer a booking for that. Um, you know, I think that giving the refs that potential to look at uh, games in real time, yes, it would add more. Uh, it, you know, it, it would definitely add more interruptions, but I think it would still be an improvement. The other thing 
I think is you can either go the other way, right? And I think that is shortening its scope as opposed to widening it. Uh, Making the fact that VAR will only be used for really important, uh, really clear and obvious decisions. And I think for me, the biggest plus of that route is that it decreases the amount of interruptions, the amount of time that is that is uh, you know going to stop. And right now, I think that is my biggest complaint with VAR. You know, so much of the emotion of football is is quickly evaporating, right? So many goals where we have mm-hmm. to wait four or five minutes to confirm so many just basic interruptions that are really killing the flow of the game. That is one thing that I, I think you have to admit, it is not a one-size-fits-all. I think that there are certain leagues, for example, and certain competitions that are doing a better job of uh, keeping it short and sweet in that aspect. But, uh, but yeah, there is still definitely plenty of improvement with regards to VAR, and I think that plenty of room for improvement uh, with regards to VAR, and I think that the biggest thing for me, we, we have to see a shift. It cannot stay where it is. We need to either widen the scope so that, you know, there are more retrospect, retrospective action taken um, on, on fouls and s- certain aspects, or you shorten it. But it cannot stay where it is right now. The, to me, the problem is, um, is theory and principle. So when you think about, I can understand the concept of we need to get major decisions right. We cannot have games decided by incorrect decisions. And we see what Thomas Tuchel, of course, against Spurs, where two goals should never have counted. Right? Both hey, Thomas Tuchel ends up getting sacked a couple of weeks later. He also benefited heavily from the Chelsea West Ham decisions uh, with VAR. But I think once you get into this, the weeds, and say, okay, it's only clear and obvious. Well, like I said, what does that even mean? So are you talking about something that's utterly blatant? How many times in a game do we see something happen that is so bad that a referee missed it? If you're missing decisions that are clear and obvious, that are deciding games, you shouldn't be refereeing. But if you're going to notice subtle things, that you've missed subtle things, then that is completely understandable. And that happens a hundred times in the game. And I think if you're, like I said, let's say it's a World Cup final. No, no. A minute ago, your player gets tripped. Referee sees it. Not sure if it was a trip or not. VAR clearly shows that a player is fouled in the build-up to a goal. Yeah. Is that a clear and obvious error if you missed it or is it not? It That's is. Another, yeah. That's another issue, Phil. I think clear and obvious. What does that even mean? You know, it's completely yeah, exactly. subjective in the heart of it, right? So in the, in the very essence of that phrase, clear and obvious, I think that we, we have to start, uh, we have to make it easier for refs. You know, I do agree that plenty of my gripes with regards to VAR are due to poor execution from the refs. But on the other hand, we are not making it easier for them with, with, kind of I agree. forcing them to, uh, shall we say, draw a line in the sand, you know, and, and kind of separate it. We need to make it so that, you know, the referee knows, even if it's a, 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 just the slightest tap 
in the slightest foul in the buildup to the goal, or even if it just, you know, glanced off its hand. I think that there are plenty of uh, ways to improve that. And I think that handball is another thing that has been, Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't know. I, I think it's been something that has definitely made me more pessimistic with regards to VAR. There have been some, so many, um, so many, uh, plays, penalties, goals, where I see a handball and I just think, you know, would that have been given a few years ago? And I, I kind of feel like, is that really the football we want? Um, so yeah, absolutely plenty of room for improvement with regards to VAR. I, I think that it is perhaps one of the best, uh, the be- best metaphor with regards to metaphor, you know, good idea, poor execution. I think that VAR had good intentions. I think that, you know, wanting to give referees the ability to look at these plays beforehand, you know, that is something that that is going to modernize the game. But right now, there are just so many imperfections with VAR, and uh, I am definitely becoming less and less optimistic as time goes on. I'm going to be honest. When it comes to the handball situation, yeah. it is the one area that I no longer have a grasp on, on what is a handball. <laughs> I, 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 I was watching, uh, I mean, I know I, I'm a confirmation bias here, but um, I mean, I look at the United Rail Sociedad game, the penalty that was given against the Santo Martinez. It was an absolute disgrace. I mean, the guy takes a shot, the Santo Martinez blocks it, it hits his legs, yeah. then hits his hand, clearly balled the hand, clearly not intentional. Then I watch Bayer Leverkusen and Hurt the Berlin. Two each. Ball comes out to the Hurt the Berlin uh, strikers, hits it, hits the defender's hand on the line, knocks it off the line, goes to VAR, and the referee says, no penalty. Rodri at Everton last season, where the PGMOL had to apologize mm-hmm. to Frank Lampard, which in many ways handed City the title. It it catches it, and it's not given. And you're going, this is ridiculous. What is a handball anymore? I I have absolutely no idea. And then I'll see some nondescript handball being given, right? And it's like, I I honestly have no idea what is going on anymore. And and I'm saying, okay, I'm going to let referees to have different judgment. There has to be a tolerance of error. But to me, there has to be a narrow scope, a narrower scope of what is a handball and what isn't. Because anyone, if someone handles a ball in a box, like uh, I think it was uh, Southampton, uh, Scott McTominay handled it twice in a box in the same movement, and it wasn't given. I have to be honest about that. And I have no idea what is going on anymore with handballs in a box. Yeah, no, for sure, 100%. I, and, Phil, you know, the biggest thing, I think perhaps one of my biggest gripes with this VAR system is the lack of consistency. There are yeah. so many decisions where, you know, you see this blatant handball ignored in, in one game, and then two hours later in the final Premier League fixture of the day, you've got, you know, this other controversial decision on the other end where it's it completely not a handball, but it's given, you know, where is the consistency? And that's my biggest gripe. I think that that, as well as the constant interruptions, the times, the lack of uh, mani- the lack of execution from the referee's perspective, as well as just the 
emotion that is being sucked out of it. There are so many issues right now that I have uh, with VAR. And I think that we definitely need to start having this conversation. Is it worth keep maintaining if it's going, if we're, we're going to, you know, keep on seeing uh, all of these, all of these things drained out of the game. I think that's seriously a conversation we need to be having in the next uh, Yeah. Years. I think also just to, to finish up on this topic, <clears throat> um, maybe the inconsistency is what we should expect because if we look at other sports that rely solely on human judgment, not machines. I, I give you boxing as an example. People will say the biggest problem in boxing is the judging. You can have two guys watching the same fight with completely different scorecards that reflect like two people watching a completely different fight. And you're yeah. going to hang out that this referee come up with one of your team 110, or this judge come up with one of your team 110, and the other guy give it 116, 112 to the other fighter. And this happens a lot. And you're going, this is why there's three judges to try to eliminate that so that the law of averages says two out of three will get it right, you know, yeah. even if there's one wrong. And so where we have human judgment and subjectivity, it all depends on a lot of the preferences. Like some referees have a tolerance for, for physicality, some don't. You know, some referees are depending on their personality or okay with, with, with some dissent, some aren't. You know, and, and some of them might go, okay, I will referee a, you know, a, a uh, Juventus Inter Milan game completely different than a Juventus Sassuolo game because I have more tolerance because it's a derby. Wait a minute, you let that go last week, but not this week. And and I think they, when we are dealing with human beings, that's what we should expect. The other problem with that is when you slow all these things down, one, it's not the same in slow motion. And two, I think in many ways, you're illustrating the problem on a much greater scale. Normally these decisions would happen a million times in a game, not get debated, we'd move on. But now we've broken it down into slices, pieces, 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 and it gets amplified and debated like we're doing. And then we're saying, why aren't these referees getting ready? First of all, it's an extremely hard job. And to me, I think it's a miracle how well these linesmen and women do every week getting minor decisions Offside decisions right nine times out of ten. Yeah. Look, Phil, I as I mentioned before, I do think we need to make things easier uh, for referees. You know, we are seeing very worrying statistics in, in England and so many other countries with fewer and fewer referees signing up. And there yeah. you're just going to have an even lower uh, pool of quality. So absolutely we we definitely need to make it easier and like i said either widen the scope or shorten it i think that it cannot stand the way that it is um absolutely all right my friend let me move on to another fun topic the battle between us and uk sport and culture (laughs) (laughs) because this is uh this has been intersecting for a while now um let's just say this the Premier League uh, and European football as a whole has been copying U.S. sports marketing for easily 35 years. Easily. I mean, the media particularly, I knew came out and worked in L.A. to learn how to do sports marketing. You, the, the, the Champions League and its current guys was revised in 92 by Daniel Johansson and UEFA to mimic, of course, the U.S. series, uh, which was much more lucrative than having you know ac milan versus you know real madrid in the first round of the champ of the european cup and one of them's going to go out after a two-legged affair didn't like that 
So it's been on this crash course for a long time. A lot of the things that we once considered sacred have been packaged up and sold. The FA Cup, I, I, I think, is a, an example of what was once sacred no longer is. Times evolve, things change, priorities change, uh, and there's no question that we are in a different world. Let me ask you this. Do you think uh, what Todd Bowley said <clears throat> was uh, received legitimate criticism? Yeah, you know, you're absolutely right with regards to the Americanization of the game. You know, for all that mm -hmm. people love to uh, hate on Americans for saying soccer instead of football or <laughs> all this it's stuff. It's not even that an American invention, that word. Both, both, yeah, exactly. Both the Champions <clears throat> League and the Premier League, I think, came from an American influence, right? Especially absolutely. the Breakaway League. Um with regards to the All-Star game, where I stand, I think that a North-South format would be completely ridiculous and perhaps shows somewhat of naivete on Todd Bowley's part as an American uh, used to an Eastern-Western mm. format as we see in MLS. But uh, I think that there are potential avenues for an All-Star game. I think that, for example, having a Premier League All-Star team of the best players you need to do a fan vote um, going up against another, for example, the Serie A All-Stars or La Liga yes, All-Stars. Yes, 100%. Yes. MLS uh, is doing that. It's It just had its second edition of an MLS All-Stars versus Liga MX All-Stars. Um, historically, MLS, the All-Star game has been a mix. So you've had the best of the East versus the best of the West. You've had the MLS All-Stars playing national teams, club teams like Manchester United. Uh, and yeah, this MLS All-Star versus Liga Mekis All-Star is uh, mm -hmm. just completed its second year. So I think it's an interesting idea. And I think that, uh, I, I think that like, like I've said, there have been so many examples of European football benefiting from an American influence. And I think that this is perhaps one case where it's, it's maybe best to, you know, okay, yes, you want to value your tradition. But is, is this something that could benefit our game? I think that the Premier League, it, you know, with the amount of financial disparity it is, it, it, it has over like Subseria and La Liga, it is easy to say, okay, there's nothing we need to improve. We are going to be on top forever. You cannot think like that as an organization because the fact is it was just a few years ago um, that La Liga were on top of the world. And before that, Serie A. These things, you know, they are cyclical. And if the Premier League does not watch out, it could uh, be topped by another league. So I think that the All-Star game, for me, I, th I think it's a very interesting idea. I think that you could have a Premier League All-Stars uh, facing up against another club team or a national team or another All-Stars side. You could have the best English players, uh, likes of Harry Kane, Reese James, Trent Alexander-Arnold, going up against the best uh, foreign side, uh, human so on, so on and so forth. I think there are a lot of interesting avenues for that. Um, so, and, and you could also have, for example, the NBA format, which is you get two captains, uh, you know, who, whoever, say, Mohamed Salah, uh, Bruno Fernandes, you know, whoever, and they pick the players uh, in a rotating format. So, you know, one player, what Bruno, say Bruno Fernandes picks first, Harry Kane goes second, Bruno goes third, so on and so forth. And it doesn't matter, 
you know, North versus South. You can just pick who you want to play with. I think that would be really interesting, honestly. I know we differ somewhat in this idea, but I think that mm-hmm. seeing, for example, the possibility of, uh, you know, Mohamed Salah playing alongside Erling Haaland and, um, and, and human son. I think that would be really interesting. I think there was a, pro- there's two different questions here. Yeah. I think for the neutral, it's interesting. The problem with England versus the U S England is a much smaller country. The U S is massive, right? So you've got East and West divide, uh, not okay. Fine. It's sports are divided across different lines here. <clears throat> so, you can take a franchise and move it from Oakland to Las Vegas or wherever, right? And you can still be successful. You can't do that in England simply because the regional divides are far too tribal. And so there's really no appetite from Northern football fans to have a Northern team against a Southern team. There'd be no emotional investment in the outcome of, I really care who wins this game. Um, I don't think Liverpool fans really want to see Mo Salah play with Bruno Fernandes. And I can assure you, Manchester United fans have no interest in seeing Bruno Fernandes play with Mo Salah. And if you're a neutral, perhaps. I think where there's utility in this idea is if you replaced the Community Shield and played a 100% charitable game that said every penny went to charity, then people could suspend the tribal rivalry for a while and show some interest. But what Todd Bowley's talking about is a commercial entity. Is a profit generating commercial entity that you get because in the US, the league primarily, the NBA is a commercial entity in itself, right? Premier League is not a commercial entity in the same sense that it owns the players and it owns the brand and it owns everything else. They generate revenue through television rights. So it's it's different, it's a different model. And I don't think you would get any major vested interest in the outcome of a North reset, especially when it's going to be comprised largely of players from all over the world. I mean, Mo Salah is from Egypt. Bruno Fernandes is from Portugal. You know, is there really a North reset divide? And some of these players have played for Arsenal and, and on other Spurs and what have you. It's like, it's not, it's, you know, and so to me, I just, I, I, I think there's a lot of things both sports can learn from each other. All sports can learn from each other. There's no question. And I do believe 100% that what we're going to see in the next couple of years, uh, we'll see clubs play league games away from home in foreign countries. We'll see it in Los Angeles, New York, Dubai. We'll see it all over the place, just like the NFL does. I think La Liga will do this first. Mm-hmm. I think that other leagues have to do this to compete with the Premier League as a commercial entity. But what people don't understand <clears throat> is that in my opinion, well, maybe they do, but <clears throat> I'm not exactly a pioneer here, my thinking. But the Premier League's commercial success means that other leagues are going to sacrifice sacred principles much quicker because they have to. And once precedent is set, the Premier League will be happy for the league to do this. They're going to watch the reaction. And if it's muted, well, you know what? It's much easier for the Premier League to follow suit. And so I think what we'll see in the next couple of years is we'll see a La Liga game in the US or across the world, and then we'll soon see Premier League doing exactly the same thing. Listen, I, I completely agree with you that North versus South format, you know, it definitely would not work. Mm-hmm. Um, with regards to the tribalism, I, I yes, I completely agree there is still a lot of tribalism with Premier League fan bases, but I do think that it is 
uh, decreasing. And I definitely think it's decreased with players. I mean, you see, you know, so many players from rival sides having vacation together, you know, going on a boat in Mykonos, having a good time. And, you know, as I said, I do think that tribalism, it, it still exists with Premier League fan bases. But, uh, you know, the past few years, your fan base, my friend, Manchester United, they have been, uh, you know, so I don't want to say cheering, but I'll say definitely supporting uh, the crosstown rivals, Manchester City. I think it's so many United fans have been. I don't know about that, but well, I, if you're a United I, fan, you're cheering City. No one at Manchester is no one, no. Man, no one at Manchester is claiming you as a fan. I, I think you know, there's a, a lot there... of United fans, though. They were happy to be okay. You know, we'll we'll somewhat support City. Anything to see no, Liverpool we, not win. Which, yes, granted, is also a local rival, but but we're let still me see crosstown rival. Does that not? I, no, because that's different. Is it? That's a metaphor. Like metaphorically, it's a, because metaphorically the choice is a, yeah. a shit sandwich with sauce or with that. And at the end of the day, it's a lesser of two evils, and that's more of a disrespect towards Manchester City than than any type of, uh, you know, uh, partial, you know, uh, suspension of rivalries. That's more the fact that you are so irrelevant to us, but Liverpool aren't. That we want you to win it because no one cares when you win it, because <laughs> it's so. But that that is okay. truly a reflection of how United fans feel about Manchester City. They okay. they do not really consider. Secondly, Zach, there is a real issue with the fact that. Manchester City, you know, they have had a serious problem with building traction with their success. I mean, first game after winning the league, they couldn't sell out their stadium. That's not a good look. So United fans repeatedly mock City over this. What I will say and concede your point, the younger generation don't support teams in the same tribal way that you and I do or did. Because, or maybe you're the same because you're of that generation, but these kids are playing FIFA. They support players probably more than clubs, right? We now see that fascination with, you know what, or they support a manager more than a club. I mean, there's teams, there's there's fans of a team and there's fans of a club and they're two very different things. And, and, and fans of a team are much more likely to, when Jose Mourinho leaves, they'll turn on Manchester United because that was their guy. They hate Solskjaer, so they'll suspend their support for United because they hate. That is totally new. And I think when the European Super League was, was, was suggested, there was some truth to what Florentino Perez was saying in the sense that younger people today don't support teams in the same way that other generations did. So I do accept that point. Yeah. I, let's, let's agree to disagree with this one. But I, I do think that uh, an all-star game, it's something worth considering, especially over, I think, the Community Shield. You don't want to add mm-hmm. more games yeah. on the players' plate. You know, absolutely. We, we have already pushed players to a breaking point. We're seeing that with so many injuries right now. But uh, if you can find a way to, I think, funnel the profits that go to an all-star game to these lower league uh, teams down the pyramid, I think that's something that we should be pursuing. You know, not only mm-hmm. is the gap between the Premier League and the rest of Europe growing, so is the gap between yeah. the Premier League and the other leagues. Fact is, yes. as much as English football has improved over the past uh, 30 years due to the Premier League's explosion, the fact is so many other teams have been left in the dust, whether that's Oldham Athletic, uh, Bradford City, you know, so many, no so many teams. 
And I think that is one area where really the Premier League has turned its back on the rest of England. And they need to do a better job of it. I can understand why people are skeptical. You know, would the money actually go to these clubs? But, you know, if they can find a way to provide that transparency and, you know, assure, ensure that this does help out clubs in the bottom of the pyramid, uh, as well as amateur sides, I think that would be absolutely fantastic. Jack, we're getting the opposite. We're, do, we're seeing these top clubs doing everything they can to create further and further division between the haves and the have-nots. Uh, we saw that with the, you know, the, the, the Regis, you know, recommendation of the Super League. It certainly wasn't an attempt to be benevolent towards other clubs. It was an attempt to create close competition with no consequence for failure, guaranteed revenue. And, you know, that, of course, is possibly the most offensive to European sport and culture that is it is indicative of US sport and culture where they have the NFL and they have leagues that are closed leagues with no promotion relegation. Um, I think for a lot of people that is a step too far and that it's important to the meritocracy of football that you can get promoted and you can get relegated and I think there's something that you know, people say, uh, oh, well, if we do that, we're, we're not going to attract owners. Maybe you attract more owners because there's more potential for success with the USL leagues. Um, you know, and to me, I think that there's something that the U.S. could learn from European sport and culture and bring that into where you don't have the teams in the bottom half of the table essentially playing for draft picks next season. You know, where it's still a league, there's multiple leagues happening within leagues and there's there's... You know, there's a trapdoor that you fall through if you're bad enough, and and that it's a punishment to bad owners that in, encourages them to invest and encourages them to be hire good people and encourages them to be responsible owners because the consequences of not doing that are horrendous. So to me, I think that provides different incentives. Um, so, but you also said something that was quite interesting, and and again, I think this is an illustration of where football is going and how it's going to end up killing the smaller guy. He's trying to emulate the RB Leipzig model. And this, he talked about the City Football Group, which I think this is horrendous for football. And essentially what RB Leipzig is doing is making sure the revenue stays in-house, right? So this is, of course, one of the reasons what it was Sesco and everything we saw this. They want to make sure that that revenue goes between their own particular clubs. City trying to do the same thing. Chelsea are going to buy other football clubs in other countries and expand. I would hate to be one of those football clubs to be nothing more than a feeder club. Um, but that is something that clearly is on the agenda. Yeah, with regards to this uh, global system, I think that there are definitely pros and cons that you have to look at. I think that, for example, Palermo, a club who spent a few years challenging for European football, you know, boasting the likes of Edinson Cavani and Javier Pastore, to be you know, the next edition of the city football group. I think it definitely takes away some of that autonomy and independence that they had uh, two decades ago. And it, you know, perhaps makes them, make some of their fans feel that they are just part of something uh, bigger. That is no longer just their club, but an attachment, um, you know, a, a, an employee in the greater city system. With that being said, you also have to look at the other end, uh, a club that has 
suffered so much instability with Maurizio Zamparini over the past two decades, a club that has gone through so many different managers and a club that, you know, after reaching the second division, maybe they just want some stability, a guiding hand and uh, some, you know, good players on loan or for cheap fees to develop. Okay. But uh, it, it is absolutely certain that, you know, there is that parasitic relationship. And I think that, yeah, you have to look at the emotional side, the, the human side of it. I think there are a lot of fans in, in all of these clubs who's, who's, who are being taken over, whether that's, uh, you know, Boavista or so many different clubs. Uh, I, I definitely think that that is something that can be disheartening as a lifelong supporter. To me, Zach, it's the equivalent of supporting a reserve team. Because you are never, I mean, one of the things that's fundamental, and we talked about this a second ago with promotion and relegation and meritocracy of sport, is <clears throat> that you have to be able to sell a dream. That maybe you can be the next Wimbledon. Maybe you can be the next team that gets promoted and you can be the next Brantford or someone like that. That it's you've you done an amazing article uh, on breaking lines on Navi Scala and Parma. Maybe you could be the next Palma. Right, um, <clears throat> that is fundamental. But if you start supporting a team and go, well, every time we have a good player, we're going to lose them. They're going to get taken from us. They're going to get moved. Um, or we will never be allowed to be successful because if we've got good enough players that allow us to be successful, they're just going to get taken by a parent club. You are a reserve team. And so what's the point at that stage? What is the point? And it, to me, I think that is a really dangerous step for football to take because, you know, it doesn't matter whether you support a team in the third division or not. In your heart, you hope one day your team will be great. That one day you could see your team play in the top division. That one day you could have a player, a player or two that is a Letizia or is a Francesco Totti or someone as a one-club guy who's great that you can identify with. Not a guy you get to keep for a year and then moves on. I mean, there's something, you know, incredibly reductive about that that I don't think is commensurate with with what is takes to be a sporting fan. Like you have to be emotionally invested in something, and if you've got no chance, none whatsoever of ever having success, you know, to me, I think it gets really hard then to sell a dream to fans. And Phil, you know, one one aspect that is not talked about that much uh, with regards to the the increasing income inequality in football, the uh, economic disparity between these super clubs and the rest is that so many fans are not necessarily are not just thinking about their teams in terms of winning trophies, but also, you know, how much are we going to sell this player for? Mm -hmm. Or how much are we going to buy this player for? They've become, in many ways, accustomed to being treated as a second-rate club. You know, you look at, for example, Benfica fans or you know, clubs of that aspect, for example, Ajax, uh, thinking about their players and not just are they going to deliver us trophies, but also are they going to deliver us a lot of money? In many ways, uh, more important for the club going forward. But I think that really tells you uh, a lot about where football is is headed. Uh, as 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 long as 
this economic gap keeps on growing, we are going to see more and more of that mentality shift. Um, but and yeah, I think that's also a consequence more Zach, to me of video games and football where young kids relationship with the sport is changing. When we, when I was growing up, my relationship with football was really through two metrics, through television and going to games. But now young kids are identifying with football through the parlance of video games. And this is partly why we see transient fans that support individuals more than clubs. They support multiple clubs. We don't, it isn't defined in the way it once was. And now we see fans that are obsessed over a couple of things. How old is the player? If they're over 23, they're pessimistic about them. Right? Um, how much can we buy and resell? Which is a, a football football manager parlance. Right? That to me is different than Ajax buying players, developing, selling, who still can get to a European Cup semi-final, than someone turning around and saying, we will determine how much you get for that player and when we take them and when we sell them. You know, Ajax, I mean, imagine if Ajax or a feeder club of Manchester United, for example, um, they would have lost more. They would have lost Anthony at a much lower price. They would have lost. They would have lost them six weeks ago. They would have lost Yuri and Timber this summer. They would have lost Edson Alvarez this summer. They it, it, and for a price that they have no control over. They've no control over who they replace them with, because now the ownership of the football club is going to tell you who you can replace them. That to me is different than developing players selling them because you have a necessity because you get five million euros for when they are divising so i think um because you're still in control of your own destiny you can still say no you can still decide you know like we anthony okay if we're going to sell you we're going to get a price that's outrageous and that to me is is not the same but yeah i understand that some fans have conditioned themselves to to that but 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 there's still a dream in that because there's always been the haves and have nots i suppose um and I would say this, Zach, I think if you look at football today and how big clubs are operating, there is, most big clubs now are looking at that 18, 23-year-old market. And that's where everybody wants to shop. I mean, you even see the PSG with Luis Campos there. You see what Chelsea, like I said, are trying to do with Arby Leipzig model, which of course is by young, develop. Um, and it brings me to my next point. Yeah. Arsenal played a 15-year-old this weekend. I have a 15-year-old son, and I look at how emotionally immature that kid is, and I look at the insane pressure that's on professional footballers, focused on professional footballers, and I'm forced to think of someone like Freddie Adu, who at 14 years of age was made to play with men at DC United because his commercial value was so much that MLA petrified of losing him to a European club for free. So they stuck him on a contract, put him in with men and destroyed this kid's career, in my opinion, because he's mentally not ready to be put in that environment with that much focus, with that much pressure. What is too young? I think it's a great question, Phil. And look, I think it definitely... It is not a one-size-fits-all uh, system. There are some 15-year-olds who are more mature than several 18-year-olds. So I think you have to take that into consideration. Uh, with that being said, yes, there are so many examples of 
you know, likes of Freddie Adu, um, Alan Halilovich, all of these players who kind of were dubbed the next big thing early on. And you look at their track record, and Hakeem Mastor, another one, you look at their track record, uh, it's typically more flops than successes. And I think that a lot of that is due to putting uh, pressure far too early on these players before they've any before they have really uh, shown anything at at the top level. Um, social media has definitely played a role in that. Uh, you you want uh, to be that person who's who's making those headlines. You want to be the team who's giving the players uh, those minutes. So there's a lot of that uh, reputation at stake for sure. But with regards to this fifteen uh, year old player. Um, at Arsenal, I think that I'm I'm a bit torn on it. I think that 15 it is pretty pretty young. Um, 16 is is young enough, and and 15 years old. Um, yes, I think that it, it could backfire in certain ways. But there have also been so many players who've broken on the scene at 16, 17 in recent years, and have gone on to be successes. Eduardo Camavinga. Uh, debuting for Ren at 16 years of age, look where he is now. Um, plenty of other examples. Going back uh, 60, 70 years or so, Pele playing at the World Cup uh, in 1958 at 17 years of age. You know, this is not necessarily a new thing. Um, so I, I think that you have to definitely look at that aspect as well. No, that's that's true, but um, and obviously you know it, it's impossible to know exactly um, you know how mature someone is. There is no barometer. Uh, I just think, you, and and actually, I was reading a, a statistic, reading that the youngest players in the Premier League, I don't have it in front of me, but other than uh, Harvey Wilson and James Milner, the rest, Isaiah Brown, the rest are, I have no idea where they even are. I mean, they're all gone. They're, they're irrelevant. I mean, I think, you know, yeah, for Martin Odegaard is obviously an exception. There are some exceptions, but, I mean, we're talking about Hendrick in Brazil at 15. You know, these kids are, I mean, there was a kid in the Northern Ireland Premier League like two weeks ago was 14. And I just think this is a lot on a young kid's shoulders to be playing because, I mean, a week ago, no one had heard of this kid. And now everyone's talking about him. And now there's massive pressure on that kid's yeah. shoulders to be a, a, a you know, a, a phenom. You know, and I just think that there's a reason why we have layered development. And I think that is really, really young to be. And, and then, of course, there's the other aspect of this, about labor laws and everything else, and whether a 15-year-old really should be playing professional sports. Yeah. You know, I mean, I mean, think about 15, Zach, how young that is. It's truly... Unbelievable. Um, before we go, I want to finish up with the uh, Brighton situation. Tell me, because uh, Graham Potter, of course, is going to Chelsea. They've replaced him with Deserby. Tell me about Deserby, what Brighton fans should expect. Overall, I think this is a very exciting uh, choice for Brighton. Roberto Deserby uh, did very well at Sassuolo, just one of the many Italian managers who polished his skills with the Nero Verdi. Uh, did very well with a lot of young players, which I think fits very well into the Brighton's model. Uh, you know, likes of Moises Caicedo, um, you know, Moises Caicedo and, and so many others who are Jean-Paul Van Heck, 
Robert Sanchez, players who are um, entering their prime. I think th that's something that is Roberto De Zerbi's bread and butter. And so, look, he's a manager, I think, stood out to a lot of defensive-minded um, coaches uh, in terms of his ability to use possession, his ability to, I think, vary things up in the build-up phase um, and really, I think, allow his center backs the freedom to uh, spread possession and, and build and, and really just uh, have, have a kind of a uh, free-flowing system that I think we saw carried over in the initial months at Shakhtar. Then, of course, the Ukraine conflict uh, with Russia happened and he's been uh, not coaching since. But I think that, you know, in terms of the next step, in Deserby's career, this is really a perfect landing spot for him. Not just in terms of the young players at his disposal, but also the system. I think is fairly similar. What he's done at Sassuolo is fairly similar to uh, Graham Potter's shape at mm -hmm. the Amex. So I'm really excited for this choice. I think that uh, there are a few available managers that were on the market that uh, are going to offer you what Deserby brings. I'm really excited to see what he does in the Premier League. Yep, highly progressive football club and a tremendous example of how well you can do when you have uh, competent people running multiple departments. Graham Potter's success is really multiple people's success. So we shall see yeah. what happens. Mate, we have to run. I will catch you again next week. Thanks as always, Zach. Don't forget, follow my friend at Zach Louis at BTL. And uh, we'll be back again next week. Take it easy, mate. All right. Cheers, mate. Bye, Bye Zach.